This is The Ascending Life with Pastor Josh Blevins of Grace Calvary Chapel. We might not pray to Mary or the saints. We might not have icons all over our building that we bow to. We might not believe in purgatory or penance, but in many ways, we've created church in our own image. Today's worship venues have become venues of entertainment and not edification. Our pastors have become performers and inspirational speakers rather than shepherds and communicators of the Word of God. The last time you were with us, Pastor Josh talked about some of the idolatrous practices of the Catholic Church. From penance to praying to saints, there are certainly some practices in the Catholic Church that need further thought and consideration. But what about your church? Pastor Josh just shared some strong exhortations a moment ago that might make you cringe. Have our churches become venues of performance rather than places of praise? As you listen today, ask the Lord to speak to you directly about changes you can make in your own life. Now, here's Pastor Josh in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3 as he continues his message, False Doctrine. Jesus came and said, what? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. You don't have to go through a church. You don't have to go through a pope. You don't have to go through a human institution. You come directly through Christ. And yet the Catholic Church in their catechism declares that there is no salvation outside of the church. And what they mean by that, maybe you've heard the phrase, the vicar of Christ. That's a title for the pope. The word vicar was, uh, is a Latin term, vicarious. It means in place of. It's a title that the Pope got in place of Jesus on the earth. That, that the Pope is declared the head of the church and the final authority with apostolic and divine authority to speak forth the truth. And that he defines what the word of God is and he defines what truth is for the church. But my Bible tells me in the book of Ephesians that there is only one head of the church that we are growing into, and that's Jesus Christ. And there's only one vicar or in place of Christ on the earth, and that's the Holy Spirit, not any human institution. One of the great idolatries, I believe, presented into into the Catholic church is the veneration, they call it, of Mary. Mary holds the titles, Mother of God, an intercessor of the saints, And it's an aberrant distortion of the true gospel. The Catholics believe that Mary, as a human being, listen, has a, and has, and had a distinct, unique relationship with God that no other human being has. The Immaculate Conception teaches that Mary was not born into original sin, nor was she affected by original sin, but was conceived full of the grace, which contradicts the gospel which tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The assumption of Mary declares that Mary, because of her own merit as a human being and the mother of Jesus, earned the ability for God to assume her up into heaven. Some Catholic theologians say that she died. Others say that she didn't die. But those who say that she died, Mary, say, oh, she didn't die because of sin. She died to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. They put her on a separate level from all other people. But let me tell you what the Bible clearly teaches. First of all, none of this is is 
merited in the scriptures. None of it's founded in the Bible. Zero. When Mary conceived Jesus and he was born, Jesus became her earthly son. When Jesus died on the cross, he became her savior. When he rose from the, from the dead, he became her Lord. And that's, that's simply it. Now, can we applaud Mary's faith and how she received that call of God and learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. But to place her on any other position or scale than any other person has no biblical precedence. And here's what is a bit frightening about where they take this. In the present, Catholics believe that Mary can be sought by the Catholic, by the faithful, prayed to, and that Mary can provide some special intercession on their behalf before God and impart to them special graces from God that they couldn't get anywhere else. <laughs> Many Catholics, if, they, if you ask them, do you worship Mary? They're, oh, no, we, we don't worship Mary. We just honor her. We venerate her. But that's not the question. The bigger question is, that I would encourage every Catholic to ask, is should I be trusting or praying to any other human being to gain me special favor, merit, or grace before God other than Jesus? The biblical answer is absolutely not. Paul told us clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, even Mary. Biblically speaking, there should be no prayers of intercession, no requests made to Mary or any other saint for that matter, other than Jesus. Pope Francis once wrote this regarding Mary. He said, just like and more than every good mother, Mary defends us from danger. She is concerned about us, even when we are concentrated on our own things and lose a sense of the way, and when we put not only our health in danger, but also our salvation. So if your salvation is in danger, who's, who's there praying for you to make sure that you get it back? Mary, apparently. Mary is there praying for us, praying for those who do not pray to pray with us. Why? Because she is our mother. And this is very concerning that Mary would be placed on any pedestal which would encourage someone to pray to her. We must pray to and through Christ alone. There's many other practices of idolatry. The practice of confession is another slap in the face of the sufficiency of Christ to completely forgive sin. One Catholic theologian writes this, about confession, the purpose of confession is to reconcile man to God. When we sin, we deprive ourselves of God's grace, okay? And by doing so, we make it even easier to sin some more. Okay, I, I get that. The only way out of this downward spiral is to acknowledge our sin, repent of them, and ask God's forgiveness. I agree with that. Here, here it goes. Then, in the sacrament of confession, grace can finally be restored to your soul, and you can once again resist sin. So apparently... The only way you're going to receive the grace of God and the strength of God to resist sin and ultimate forgiveness is if you do it through the priest. If the priest offers you forgiveness of sins through your confession. My Bible says that Jesus died once and for all 
and he lives to make intercession for us. That means I don't have to confess. Now, James tells us there is sometimes healing that comes in the confession of sins one to another. If I sin against you, I should confess my sin to you. If I'm struggling with something that I need accountability on, I can confess my sin. But confessing our sins one to another that we might find strength is different from obtaining divine forgiveness for my sin from you or from a priest. Jesus said, call no man father, for there is only one father in heaven. And Jesus is the one who ultimately has the authority to forgive us of our sin. So there's no biblical sense. They do quote, well, Jesus told his apostles, anything you forgive is forgiven, and any sin that you do not forgive will not be forgiven. So that's proof right there. Well, there's a couple errors here. Number one, just because Jesus told something to his specific apostles doesn't mean it trickles down to every priest and every pope and every pastor that exists. It was given in a context. Secondly, it was in the context, not of divine forgiveness between God and man, but in the operation of the church. Like when Peter looked at Ananias and Sapphira and said, you you guys lied against the Holy Spirit, you're going to receive the judgment for that. God was purifying the church. Paul exercised this authority when someone sinned in the church of Corinth, and he wrote to them, he said, hey, you know what, I forgive them from this far. I forgive them, receive them back. Why? So that unity could be restored in the church. It wasn't that a man has the power to declare forgiveness or lack of forgiveness over another person. Only Jesus can do that. And so there's all these introduction of things that are unnecessary and even damaging and hurtful in regards to someone's pursuit of the truth. Regarding penance, of course, it's silly to think that you can somehow add to the sacrifice of Jesus or earn his merit by some good work that you can do or by some prayer that you can pray. The Bible I read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 tell me that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 100%. Jesus does it apart from your good works and whether or not you deserve it. It's grace. I don't have time to continue down the list. Again, the the vicar of Christ. Transubstantiation from the very beginning, even at the 13th session of the Council of Trent in the 16th century, century, the Catholic Church set in stone that whoever does not believe the communion elements are the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus, let him be anathema or eternally damned. And they believe that every time a, a, a priest takes that, it turns into the re-sacrifice of Christ, his physical body, his real blood, right there in the elements. But Jesus has been sacrificed once, and he said, when you do these things, it's in remembrance of me. It's in celebration of the once and for all sacrifice. If you have trusted, if you are trusting in faith in Christ's sacrifice, you do not need his blood and his body reapplied to you by a priest. For he has presented himself before the very throne of God on your behalf. And so we see these things. Sadly, the Catholic Church has assumed the role of Savior, and it doesn't invite people into a relationship with God through faith in Christ. It invites people to attain salvation through church sacraments, 
attached to their best efforts under the banner of Jesus. Well, before we get too far down the line of pointing out the errors of the Catholic Church, I love what Warren Wiersbe wrote. He said, before we judge others, perhaps we ought to examine our own lives and our own churches. Are we permitting religious tradition to bind us, to blind us to the truth of God's word? Are we so involved in Bible study that we fail to see the Jesus of the word? Does our knowledge of the Bible give us a big head or a burning heart? In today's modern evangelical church, we might not pray to Mary or the saints. We might not have icons all over our building that we bow to. We might not believe in purgatory or penance. But in many ways, we've created church in our own image. Today's worship venues have become venues of entertainment and not edification. Our pastors have become performers and inspirational speakers rather than shepherds and communicators of the word of God. Our public praise has become concert-based on our favorite musical preferences rather than enthroning the holy God upon our praises. Our services, our gatherings, our prayer meetings have been ordered around the convenience of other important events in our life, like football and soccer games and maybe missing our favorite TV show. The pews of our churches are filled with people who want to be served by paid ministry professionals while never actively becoming part of the mission of Christ. So maybe we need to look at ourselves and say, are we following the way of Jesus? We can, we can and we should point out the errors of dead religion around us, but let us also take an honest assessment of the dead religion that might be within us. I'm just so moved by that. Do you believe the words of Jesus when he said, two or three of you are gathered together in my name as my followers, there I am in the midst of them. Do you believe Jesus is here? I think we ought to meditate on that thought for a little while as we leave today. I want to move on to another error, error that I believe has really distorted and actually hindered the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our churches. Two areas I believe kind of culminate in the same category. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot it down. But this idea that there is new divine revelation being given to the church by new apostles and prophets. I want to be cautious here to define this appropriately. Let me ask you a series of questions. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit still actively speaks to his church today? Absolutely. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit uses the gift of prophecy in the church today? I don't know if you do, but I certainly do. Because Paul said, don't despise prophecies. The prophetic word is both the foretelling and the forthtelling of God's logos, of his written word, of his living word. Let me ask you this. If a proclaimed, self-proclaimed or ordained apostle writes a new book or gives a prophetic word on television or on the internet about the church, 
should those words be added to our Bible? Okay, I, I got a lot of no's. Yet there's a movement today that is marked by the very belief that the modern day apostles operate in the same function and in the same office as the apostles, Peter, John, the apostles appointed by Jesus and Paul. And that has certain implications. In the early 1990s, a new wave of theology started rolling through mostly charismatic and Pentecostal churches in North America. And it was carried by this idea that the early 2000s marked an apostolic awakening. They believed that the office of apostles and prophets as described in Ephesians chapter 4 was not in practice as it should be, and that God was raising up, reaffirming, reinstituting apostles and prophets like the apostles of old to guide and lead and declare truth to the church in this day and age. Okay, my ears are open. How do they define? Now, this movement doesn't have a specific name. One of the early fathers of this third wave movement, uh, his name's Peter Wagner, he coined a term called the New Apostolic Reformation. They don't call themselves that, but he kind of coined that term. And he wrote a book about defining what these roles are. And here's why it concerns me. Look at this with me. He wrote that apostles, quote, can give new divine revelation, but their distinct task is the implementation of the new divine revelation. Speaking of prophets, he says, prophets, quote, receive the new divine revelation. Okay, so the language is a little weird to me. It's a little foreign to my background. Okay, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. What do they mean when they say new divine revelation? Well, then he gets to the role of pastors and teachers. That's, that's me, apparently. He says, pastors and teachers do not generally receive new divine revelation. Thus, their roles are limited, listen, to teaching the new revelation that has been received by the apostles and prophets and the older revelation contained in the Bible. Now, that kind of language causes a real yellow flag to say, I need to understand why someone would even suggest that my job is to teach the old revelation of the Bible and to teach the new revelation, basically putting them on par in scope of authority or divine inspiration. I believe there's good reason for us to believe biblically that the modern day role of apostle is uniquely different today than it was by the apostles, for the apostles that Jesus himself chose and selected. Paul, being one of those apostles, even wrote of this. He was visited by the resurrected Jesus. He was going through the list of the apostles, how they were visited by the resurrected Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, he said, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles. We might call those the capital A apostles. So Paul says, I am an apostle. I do have the authority of the spirit in the church. He did have the authority that what he penned was scripture inspired by God. But he said, I was the last one that Jesus appeared to. And I was born out of due time. And I believe that, that when he said our, the foundation of our faith is built on the apostles and the prophets, that he was closing that sense of that specific authority. Now, I do believe the apostolic authority exists. 
People who plant churches, who start movements, people who have wide areas of influence over many pastors, this is a special gifting. It's a special calling, unique in the body of Christ, and it's important in these days. But I think it's very dangerous to state that we can have new divine revelation by apostles of equal authority to the early apostles that can be taught on par with the old revelation of God's word. That scares, that, that frightens me enough to say, you know, I'd rather not introduce that stuff. I just would rather stay away from that. They, even if it's that they're skirting the edge so close. On top of this, many proclaimed apostles and prophets in modern day times have long records of false prophecies. You guys, we give Jehovah's Witnesses a hard time for all their, lost, their, their false prophecies about when Jesus would return and all these sorts of things. We give Mormons a hard time about their living apostles and the authority that they carry. We give the Catholics a hard time about the Pope being the vicar of Christ. But we give all those prophets and apostles in our movements grace when they false prophesy because they say they believe in the Apostles' Creed. Well, we believe Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose again from the That's what we believe. Oh, they must be legitimate. You guys, the Old Testament had very strict ramifications for people who spoke in the name of God. If you were going to say, thus saith the Lord, you better be sure it's the Lord, because if it doesn't come to pass, you get stoned. From Benny Hinn's declaration that Fidel Castro would die in the 1990s, thus saith the Lord, Kenneth Copeland's prophecy that the, of the end of COVID, and the false prophecies of so many people in between. Again, just be cautious, church. Paul tells us the signs of the apostle, the true apostle, <laughs> with all humility and suffering, persecution, not making names for themselves, not fleecing the flock of God off of prophecies. And again, I don't mean to offend anybody here. I'm just saying the way that we test prophets and apostles God has given us the litmus test. He has given us his word. We are safest when we operate within the boundaries of his word. A few other doctrines that come out of this that you need to be aware of. You will hear things like that Jesus, Jesus ceased, laid aside all of his divine attributes and was a man. While it's true that Jesus intentionally subjected himself to human weakness, he never ceased to possess the full nature and authority of God. Never. And what this builds on, and you'll hear this a lot, is that while Jesus was just a man, and he did everything by the power of the Holy Spirit, and so we're just men and women, and so we should do everything by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means that we should be able to do everything Jesus did. That's the, that is the logic that they follow. When the Bible is perfectly clear, I'm sorry to break this to you, there's only one Jesus and you are not him. Didn't Jesus say that greater works than, than these my followers would do? Yeah, absolutely. That they'll pick up snakes, that they'll drink poison and it won't hurt? Yeah, absolutely. We're not having snake handling or poison drinking in the communion to, you know, next week. Why? Because Jesus was saying, as my spirit fills the church and as they go out into the world united in the power of the spirit, greater impact, greater miracles, greater things will be done than what was done in the scope of Galilee. You've never heard a truer word spoken than the message given by Pastor Josh Blevins as he spoke in today's edition of The Ascending Life. 
In case you're hearing us for the first time, we're a ministry out of St. Joseph, Missouri. And like so many outreach programs, it wouldn't be possible without the generous donations of people like you. All we ask is that if your heart was touched today by Pastor Josh's message, and you feel led to further the truth of the gospel, would you consider clicking on the Giving tab located at our website, theascendinglife.com. If you're interested in getting to know us a little better, go to the About link located at the top of our page, theascendinglife.com, or watch us online via Facebook. While you're there, check out all the other avenues to get into God's Word. There's even some options for when you're on the move. Under the Media tab, you'll notice links to podcasts and our YouTube channel. That website again is theascendinglife.com. As it's our desire to point you to Christ, it's also our wish that you would simply feel free to talk with us if your heart is heavy with life or full of praise. Just dial 816-279-2090. That number again is 816-279-2090. We look forward to hearing from you. Friends, there's no better place than to be here learning about the life-giving Savior who is Jesus. So, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for taking the time to listen to this broadcast of The Ascending Life. Reaching up, we're pressing